Clubhouse. I'm sorry. You're sorry. The surgeon? A surgeon. I once was a doctor like you. Yeah. With a complete lack of regard for human life. Not complete. I've gotten that call. It hurts. You don't believe me? You killed 23 people. Never on my operating table. Church and the state, Dr. Capshaw. I never mix business and pleasure. How can you separate the two? Perhaps that was my particular brand of madness. <laughs> Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing episode eight of season two, the spring premiere, Ouroboros. This is the third episode that was written by Nora and Lila Zuckerman, having written season one episodes 18, Scheherazade, and the pivotal junkyard killer episode called Alone Time, which was episode 11. And Chris Greismer, this is his second episode directing, having directed earlier this season, episode five, Bad Manners. Bad Manners actually comes up a couple of times in the course of this discussion. Maybe not between you and me, but if you guys stay tuned to the end of our discussion of this episode, we have a fantastic interview with J.T. Tarmel himself, Frank Hartz. Great to have Frank back. And because the last time we spoke to him was right after episode two, Speak of the Devil, uh, we had a lot of catching up to do with Frank about what J.T.'s been up to. And Bad Manners came up a couple times because that's the episode where he decides not to press forward the complaint against uh, his fellow officer O'Malley. So uh, Chris Chris Greismer coming up all over our episode tonight, guys. Actually, that's really interesting because I just didn't even make the connection between bad manners and just what he was going through at the same time, just the title of the episode. So that was like a nice little connection there, side it, connection. It is a nice little connection. That was a great episode anyway. That's the debutante killing, uh, the debutante murder episode. Uh, you know what? And I really like Alone Time from season one. That's an episode that stands out to me. That's Malcolm trapped and alone. The junkyard killer has kind of trapped him and he's having flashbacks to when he's young Malcolm and the first time he meets the junkyard killer as a friend of his father's when they're getting ready to go on that that trip, the the camping, fishing, murder trip. Yeah, that was really the ramp up to um, the girl in the box arc. It, it really was. And, and and episode 18 was a pivotal episode in Malcolm and Eve, in, in Eve trying to pump Martin for information about the girl in the box. So a lot of, lot of connections between, a lot of behind the scenes, behind the camera connections between tonight's Ouroboros and, uh, and uh, our writers and directors for tonight. Yeah, I, I, I was going with Lila Zuckerman. I know it's uh, L-I-L-L-A, so Lila maybe, but I, I my brain just wants to say Lila, so... Yeah, I was like, because I know a lot of Lilas, and L-I-L-A is Lila, so I was going Lila. Yeah, so you, I co- you, covered it bo- you covered it both ways, so I think you're good. You said it once as Lila and once as Lila. Did so, I really? I'm yeah, sorry. You're I mean- good. I, I, I like it. You're You're hedging your bets. One way or another, we would have said it right. It wasn't like you I called her like. I apologize for a the lack of inc- the lack of consistency and b if I said it wrong. Because, Listen, um, it, was, it wasn't like you called her Lila once and then Marjorie another time. So I think I think it's all good. Fair enough. Good. I mean, my my name has been massacred enough in my lifetime that I shouldn't be so sensitive to it. So. L- Listen, my name's Michael, and I can't get people to spell it right. Everyone keeps putting the a before the uh, the e before the a, like I'm Amish. Michael. 
So uh, it happens all the time. Happens all the time. It happened in my year. Well, it happened in our yearbook, uh, our high school yearbook, Sheila. Oh, yes. Our high school yearbook has my name spelled wrong. It's insane. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not super bitter about something that happened. 25 years ago <laughs> and, and, and not holding on to it. I look pretty good in that picture though. So it's a shame that, you know, they airbrushed out all the acne and, and, you know, all of my blemishes and flaws. Well, as much as technology would allow in 1996. And uh, yeah, uh, you so were it, just adorable. It's uh, fine. But it to be besmirched by a, a wrong spelling of my name. It was when I was signing people's yearbooks that year. I think in a couple of people's yearbooks, I actually crossed out the spelling and I, I think you it. fixed it in mine. Now I, that I, I believe I it. fixed it in a lot of people. I remember going around <laughs> to the music department and I was like, you know, uh, K-I-T, you've been a great friend. My name is spelled A-E-L, you know, so it was uh, F-Y-I. Yeah. Uh, for your consideration, <laughs> please spell my name correctly. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so guys, stick around to the end of this episode. <laughs> Frank Hartz is fantastic. I think he and I are going to be best friends. I'm really excited about it. I oh, we're going we, to a Met game. I, but yeah, it's going to be fantastic. We're all getting our vaccinations. We're all going to go watch the Mets lose a game and, and eat fantastic food out at City Field. So, and- Really, really super, super, uh, super excited about that. Anyway. Back to like podcast business. We have a Spotify playlist uh, called The Surgeon's Files, where we have some mood music to keep you entertained as you wait the days in between the episodes. I love the playlist, uh, Pod Clubhouse uh, and Spearheaded by Sheila. You've actually started several different playlists for various shows. Yellowstone is a favorite of mine uh, that you you and Steph had uh, put together. And The Prodigal Someone is great because there's great music in this. Uh, in addition to the original scored music, the uh, covers that they have on the show are just fantastic. So it's great. It's great uh, background music. You know, I'm working from home still. So if I don't have a podcast to put on, I, I'll throw on the Prodigal Son podcast uh, playlist. Thank you. I've actually gone back to season one and started adding a good number of those songs too fingers crossed if we get that renewal for season three coming up in a couple of weeks fingers fingers toes eyes everything crossed you and i may be going back and recapping season one doing a <gasps> rewind on season one for so, reals I, I think so i think that would be a fun 20 week excitement uh to fill the void until we get that next season so i am sign me up uh, breaking news. I just thought of, I just thought of that right now. So we'll, we'll see if that actually gets vetted out and happens. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there's enough there, even with the mystery being taken, taken care of and people who have seen it before. I think this is the kind of show that there's enough nuggets in every episode and there's enough stuff to talk about and think about. And, and there's so much layers. Uh, there's so many layers in these episodes that I think you can really go back, revisit them and still get fresh things out of it. Even if you've seen it before and for those that haven't seen the show before what a great way to get involved in the show i'm a completist i really like going back uh once i get into a show and it's going to have legs and it's going to run i really like to go back and and fill in the gaps well i'm optimistic about this because i think our run with yellowstone going back to season one and season two did fairly well so i'm and just the the format worked so um i'm a veteran at this (laughs) see and I'm excited. I'm excited. All right. Well, let's get down to business. Let's get down to tonight's, to tonight's episode. Episode eight. I mean, we're already up to episode eight of season two. We're in the back end. There's only f- five more episodes after this, I believe. I think it's just going to be a 14 episode season, 13 episode season, 13 episode season. So yeah, we're, we're, we're getting down to it now, people. And I know that's sad, but also that means there's going to be some great stuff coming our way. Overall, Sheila, what did you think of Ouroboros? Did it do everything? everything you needed to we've been away a month did it suck you right back in 
I was so excited to come back to this. Yes, it sucked me right back in. And I was waiting for Simon Hoxley and his debut and all of the um, the fanfare that he generated in just the like the two minute clip. I don't even think it was two minutes at the end of um, the winter finale where he was headed to New York City. So I was just excited for this. And it, it, I was on the edge of my seat. I don't want to sound cliched, but I mean, this was very much there was a lot hanging in the balance. You know, was he going to, you know, pull the thread to use that term from um, from earlier in the season, to to unravel the Whitleys and their their cover up of of this. So um, yeah, I was just really excited to to see where this went, and I'm just happy to have the show back. I, I really missed it. You start hyping it up. A, a month is a long time to go without new episodes, and so. I I feel like there's always a a fear you're going to get higher expectations, but the show really, it really hit a note. I mean, I think face value, the the season finale, the Lou Diamond Phillips directed episode was a really high point to go out on a break. And I think this picked it up really, really well. My only downside is that if it ends up being the only time we get to see Alan coming really this season, that's going to be a bummer. And it kind of looks like that, but listen, I'm embracing this this life now where I'm choosing to appreciate the things I have versus pining over and missing the things I don't have. And so I'm going to appreciate the time I got to spend with Simon Huxley and not fret about any time that I wasn't wasn't owed and, and may not get with him. Well, Frank did leave the door open for for us when we had that conversation with him about Simon's longevity on the show he did he did i do get the impression though and and obviously this episode ends with gill telling simon huxley that he's welcome back anytime just call first i I have the impression with only five episodes left of the season that's going to be more of a season three thing i think if we get alan coming back that is what my gut is telling me but all the more reasons people i mean that's one of the things we're looking at in the next six weeks we have renewal time right we're going to be entering early may shows are going into may sweeps networks are finalizing their decisions for their fall schedules so you know if you are a prodigy and you are out there and you want this show to be back for season three tell your friends tell your parents you know break into people's homes turn on fox on tuesday nights just set their tvs and then leave don't take anything you know get everyone you can watching the show make this last ditch effort make the people make the the suits hear you that they want uh, prodigal son season three and hashtag renew prodigal son Hashtag Renew Prodigal Son and actually don't break into people's homes. Maybe ask their permission. Can I come into your house and use your television just to set a channel? I'm not even going to stay. I just need to turn it on and then leave. Uh, that's the that's the proper way. Don't yes, actually. We are advocating for safe handling of watching a Prodigal Son. <laughs> yes, we're advocating for uh, consensual breaking, breaking and entering, not uh, forced breaking and entering. <laughs> Don't smash any windows. Our insurance yep. doesn't cover that. You'll be turning up on ring doorbells. Don't, don't do it. Oh, man. I wish I had a ring door. I live in an apartment building, so I just still have like the old uh, fish eye doorbell like peephole thing. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, there's so much noise. Like there's a kid who lives at the end of the hall. So my the ring, I think I'd probably be getting notifications constantly if it was like a motion detector kind of thing anyway. We just so. got one and I want to disconnect it. I hate it. Well, the voyeur in me would be okay with it, but I couldn't get like I couldn't get a ton of messages constantly. That would drive me insane because Yeah, uh, it's it's I mean like I literally on my phone right now I have 99 messages cuz that's all it stores. <laughs> like 99 no- notifications. You're saying you have 99 problems and Ring is one. Oh is god, I hate it. I hate it. 
let's get to the episode. So I like tonight picks up not only where the finale thread left off with the introduction of Simon Huxley at the very end of that episode, but it goes all the way back to the season premiere. We we got answers to how did Malcolm get rid of Endicott's body? This is something you and I very specifically talked about on this podcast. We had gotten some flashbacks the first couple of episodes of Malcolm over the body, chopping up the body. We had a lot of time spent on that, a lot of time replaying Ainsley slashing Endicott's throat. But we said, are they going to show us the actual whole process of how did it get to Estonia? And we said, have faith, have faith in Chris and Sam, have faith in the creatives, have faith in the show. And you know what? I felt like we were rewarded for our faith tonight. Yes, the payoff was fantastic for that that patience. Of all the possible scenarios, I know you tend to spend a lot of time thinking about these kinds of nooks and cranny ideas and details. Was a courier system something that was in your brain at all? Or was this a was this a delightful surprise how it played out tonight? This was a delightful surprise because I couldn't for the life of me think how he was going to get like these dismembered bodies, body parts rather, um, from New York to Estonia, presumably as lockdown was sort of happening because that's kind of like where we were at with this. Yeah. So, I mean, I really didn't kind of dig into like how I wanted to be joyfully surprised. Like I didn't want to build up any expectations and just the ingeniousness of using Endicott's own illicit uh, courier network was just, um, was just something I wasn't expecting. And I was just absolutely enjoying every minute of it. I mean, as the kids say on, uh, on Twitter, on the, on the Twitter and the TikTok, it was just, you know, shift's kiss. It was, it was just wonderfully done to use his own network to ship his own body. Fantastic. Well done. You know, Malcolm, if you were here, I'd give you a slow clap, you know, just like, well done, sir. I appreciate you. It was very much um, this Ouroboros kind of a, a scenario. So, oh, I liked it. Yeah, I, the Ouroboros. I, you know, I was chomping at the bit as soon as I saw the title. I'm a big fan of the Ouroboros iconography. I love when it pops up in things. I think it's just an interesting symbol. It's, a, it's an ancient symbol. It goes back to ancient uh, Egyptian civilization. It was adopted by the Romans. It was adopted by the Greeks. Uh, and a, a symbol of uh, eternal cycle, the cycle of life, death, rebirth. It, you know, it, in some cultures, it's a fertility symbol. In in other uh, in other cultures, the tail of the snake represents uh, fertilization. It's a phallic symbol. It represents the penis. Young wrote about uh, the Ouroboros, and, and he has this whole concept about it relating to alchemy and the idea that the Ouroboros represents transformation itself, that we are our own creators and destroyers of things. Uh, again, just playing on the whole idea, the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Uh, it's fantastic. And it, it, you could apply it to so many things. I've seen it applied in TV show analysis to time jumps, to time loops. It's it's a really versatile symbol that probably gets overused, but really, really a fan of it. If anyone can use it in a show or a movie, even slightly intelligently, I get really, really excited about it. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're friends, right? Good friends? Yeah, sure. Judgment-free zone? Uh, this is a safe place. That was the most cerebral, well-thought-out, intelligent answer as, you know, to, to what the Ouroboros represents. Me, on the other hand, for some reason, it has been living in my head as the connection is like wooly-bully. Like, the way they were saying Ouroboros, I was like, 
it, it came up as Wooly Bully in my head. And it has now been on a loop rent-free in my head since Friday when I watched this episode first. Like, Wooly Bully, yes. Wooly Bully. The actual chorus, yes. You know, I saw Wooly Bully in your notes, but I didn't read them terribly carefully. And I thought you were talking about the little furry creature that when you touch it, it rolls up into a ball. And um, I and I thought like a woolly like a woolly bear. No, 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 like I, like the song. Yeah, no, I understand that now. Talking about it, but I my, when I just read your word quickly in your notes, I thought of the woolly bear, and I was like, well, yeah, it does kind of curl up into a circle. It kind of looks like an Ouroboros, like a like a fuzzy, cute one. So I was like, I see where she's going there. I I don't get the woolly bully thing, other than it's, it's just how they were saying it. I don't know. You you well, know that see, my see. head is a weird place. Ouroboros. See, it's not a podcast unless Mike sings. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it is what it is, people. Yeah. No. So I was great, you know, and I was chomping at a bit. I was like, oh, man, they're not going to explain it. Right. They're going to they're going to have faith in the audience to talk about, you know, to, to name the episode that to lay out all of the elements of it, but then just kind of make you go on Google and look it up yourself. What is the Ouroboros, if you don't know? And I was like, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about it on the podcast. It's going to be great. And then uh, they give a great summation of what the Ouroboros is and how it applies to the episode at the end of this episode. I was like, well, fuck you guys then, because I, you don't need me then. You're, they're <laughs> talking your about moment. it. You're, you're, ta- you're talking about it. I mean, you have this great, uh, this great line here, uh, which is also funny because it's, uh, it, it talks about millennials. The head of the snake. You're going to be killed by a millennial. What a twist. Oh, Simon Huxley. We hardly knew ye. I love I love your quips. You, Don't you, talk about it like he's not here. He's, I, I mean, I had that morbid prediction, but, you know, thankfully that didn't come to pass. Although it almost did. It almost did. And I think I think there's a great thought experiment we should do a little bit later on about uh, if if it didn't if this episode didn't play out this way how your morbid you know thought experiment would have played out because i think i think there's an interesting scenario there a road not traveled but a road very close to have been traveled right it's like the parallel lane here uh yes and a parallel lane that's very very close like the the thinnest veil separating two worlds like the so. queen's boulevard and that side little local lane too obscure. Right <laughs> uh, no, I mean uh, not to people. Only if only for people that live in Kew Gardens. So we're like, yeah, man, I get it. Going to Sam Ash, gonna get me some drumsticks. Gotta gotta cross the Boulevard of Death. To gotta get go there. on the QB. I know, Nick. You know, park the car, buddy. We gotta go get some guitar strings and some guitar and some drumsticks. And uh, before Swivel has our next practice, that was. Just oh my me. God, Swivel! Wow. Yeah, 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 going way back, hopping wow. in the old way back machine. Wow. So, yeah, that was my band in high school, people. I was a badass, short-haired drummer back in the old days. So I'm, I'm feeling very Ouroboros-y myself. Time is a loop. I'm just, I'm living in high school in this episode. I, I, I'm still thinking about my name being spelled wrong, honestly. So <laughs> anyway, uh, kind of a boring night on the old murder tally. You know, it was a lot of gunplay, which is not terribly exciting for a show. Uh, yeah, I mean, this show usually brings something a lot more creative. But we did have a fantastic conversation about the footman sword when Huxley and Malcolm are in Malcolm's apartment. They have that great scene where they each kind of jockey for position. Uh, I love the idea of Malcolm explaining that the footman sword has a dull blade, but is meant to pierce armor, meaning it has a sharp tip. Uh, and and it, strong, yeah. Yeah, a sharp tip that can, that can pierce but it wasn't meant to be an act of combat. What a great metaphor for Malcolm, you know, a guy who's just a, a target, you know, he strikes with target precision. 
not unlike a snake. A snake, you know, a snake has very dull sides, but has a very sharp head to it. Uh, and, you know, but can pierce with its And teeth. much like Malcolm's role within the NYPD, he doesn't have a gun himself. He's not there to, to pierce. He's not there to take down the bad guy. He's there to pierce the armor, metaphorically, to solve the case, to catch the bad guy. Man, you are setting me up tonight, Sheila, for these oh, music Look at this. Look at these clips rolling at you people. God. I can't die in Brooklyn. Don't you carry a gun. Don't you? I'm British. Ah, ah. This is through and through. You'll be okay. Uh, not the cashmere. No one carries a gun. One's British and one is Malcolm. I mean, so, you know, <laughs> the FBI the FBI took away Malcolm's gun, I believe, if I remember the pilot episode correctly. Uh, or at least advised him very strongly he should not carry one. They just wrote Simon so perfectly. I I mean, we only saw him for a very short time, you know, just one episode here so far. And just I'm I'm hook, line and sinker in for all of his quips. Yeah, great quips. I mean, he's a real foil, a real quip foil to Martin. Martin, who delivers his line so dryly and so so tongue in cheek. Simon Huxley is the complete opposite here. He's the 180 because he's so over the top. You know, if there was a river of ham, he would be swimming in it, uh, doing backstrokes (laughs) of ham. You know, like he goes to the Kenneth Branagh school of acting levels of ham. So, yeah, I mean, Simon Huxley is just this very larger than life personality and makes quits that are are larger than life. To stop, you've been shot and to stop and and talk about, uh, you know, not dying in Brooklyn. There are worse places that die have you been to the bronx my man so <laughs> staten island <laughs> well certain parts of staten island i mean there's a lot of garbage dumps in staten island. a lot of landfills in staten island though it's so. just hard to get to staten island that's really like the the major problem and it smells bad during the summertime i know i worked in the kmart there i know i know it does not smell great when you're near the arthur kill landfill in the summertime wow we are just going on a geography tour i know guys you know all the majority of the listeners here who don't live in the tri the tri-state new york area sorry uh uh, you're getting a really geographically specific episode tonight. Find us endearing. <laughs> <laughs> Sad no Adresa. What do you think that's about? I oh, that was like the first thing I was like, as soon as it ended, I was like, whoa, whoa where the hell is she? I haven't seen her in a month. Come on. So I, I don't know. I don't have any really good insight as to why. Yeah. I thought they would have the whole team back together for the, the spring premiere. Yeah, I agree. I was really hoping to see her. And I was, I was happy we got to see the whole team. But it is tough when you have these guest stars come on. You need to make room for them. And, you know, I guess just logistics being what it is, you have to keep it to a 42, 43 minute episode. Something got to get bumped. So I'm sure there was great Adresa material that just got, you know, on the cutting room floor for this episode, sadly. But that also means there will be no Adresa's corner tonight. And hopefully she's not plotting becoming like a a, a Riddler-esque or uh, some kind of Batman-esque murder villain. Oh, I was going like more Fatal Attraction because, you know, she's she was burned by Malcolm the last episode. My darkest timeline theory that Adresa becomes a serial killer of some sort, which is how I closed out the finale, uh, mm. the winter finale, you know, a month ago. I, I hope her not being in this episode isn't like foretelling that but we were promised episode nine uh, the, going back to fox's tcas episode nine uh, uh keiko Gena said is going to be a adresa centric episode so we do have that to look forward to next week if if the production held to what it was supposed to be next week uh no adresa this week next week adresa centric it'll be uh, the adresa room not corner 
Oh, it'll yeah, the whole damn building, the whole the whole morgue. We're we're giving you the whole morgue <laughs> next week. So, uh, things I was happy about this week. We got another daily affirmation. We've gotten now. I think uh, this is our third one this season. Here we go. I attract caring and positive people into my life. And you got a little sunshine. You got a little sunshine squawking in that sound clip. He lives. Sunshine lives. I know. I know. Again, this is another thing you and I have been talking about. I I feel like the writers listened to this podcast and they were like, oh, shit, we got to talk about Sunshine. They're getting worried that Sunshine's dead or replaced by like a stuffed puppet or something. And and not only one sighting, we got two sightings. We got two sightings. Not only did he appear in the beginning of this episode, then he was a very attentive student for Malcolm later on when Malcolm is giving us a lesson on how to properly hack a, a phone using a stolen thumb. ID print, you know, a little battery, some metal coil and a severed thumb. And you, too, can hack into someone's phone. Yeah, just, you know, you'd have to get the thumb off of somebody, though. That's just kind of, you know, puts a damper on things. There's some parts of Prodigal Son and and this scene in particular that really could uh, double as MacGyver after dark, you know, like like a real dark dark you know again the darkest the darkest timeline version of macgyver like, like when boy scouts go wrong kind of a thing yeah yeah, yeah. When boy scouts go wrong yeah because macgyver yeah. wouldn't sever a thumb i can't see macgyver cutting a guy's thumb off a dead guy's thumb off maybe dragging a body or something but i couldn't right. see him. maybe the whole arm you know i don't know yeah i mean malcolm would though and obviously did when, when all other things fail you have to do what you have to do in order to protect your family tonight's episode it opened by showing us two very different kinds of lives that malcolm and simon huxley in really his big intro lead do you think after watching the entire episode simon's pampered life montage uh and malcolm's i wake up screaming chained to my bed and i take a lot of pills and every morning lifestyle did that really play out in this episode did did or was that just table setting with real no payoff in and how they and how these two played off of each other in the actual episode i know i think that's a really great question because malcolm definitely embodies that i wake up screaming that chaotic that very jarring kind of a lifestyle because you know he ended up you know being taken on a a car ride through brooklyn and dangling off of a boat you know he had a lot of just trauma and not to mention you know the thumb withstanding there was a lot of trauma in that he endured again this episode um some of it at his own hand but still like that, that was a really good portrayal of who these men are. Simon is almost like the Pepe Le Pew. You know, he's just like hopping through life and, you know, will eventually catch his prey because he's just, you know, trying to be one step ahead. I'm very envious of, of Simon's lifestyle. The green, you know, juice smoothie, getting the manicure and the fluffy robe. I think that's a good way to go through life. But yeah, I think that was a really good analogy as to how these men are very different and how their approaches are different. Malcolm is a tortured soul, and I think he approaches his work from a tortured soul point of view always. You know, he doesn't go into a crime scene analysis in a in a happy place. He may be happy or enthusiastic about having a new murder to work. He doesn't glorify it. And and he doesn't also do laps. I think that's what I'm trying to say. He doesn't take laps, victory laps, about his great brain. He profiles and does the best he can, but he doesn't really pat himself on the back whether he gets it right or wrong. 
I think the idea of Simon, this pampered dilettante from Europe coming, Simon does take victory laps. He thinks he is the bee's knees and the cat's meow all at once. And I think he does. He rings the, he rings the literal ship's bell, you know, when he thinks he's got it right. Even when he's wrong, or even when he's right but thinks he's wrong at the end of the episode, and then still takes a victory lap and writes a new book called *The Ouroboros Mur- Murders*. Yeah, I, I think I think that opening montage is a very good example of how these two live not only live their life but also approach their work. Simon offered a very different and kind of correct profile on the steward's death as being a targeted assassination, and Malcolm had a different approach. He was like, "This is someone she knew, and it was personal." So just the difference in the profiles. Is this evidence that Malcolm is still a little off in his profiles, do you think? I don't think so, because I think Malcolm was right, as it turned out, without knowing that this was part of a larger investigation that Simon was working. He correctly predicted it was someone that the the victim knew, and it was, because they were all links in the chain, as it turned out. So they all did know, they knew the person above them and below them in the chain because they would have to interact with them. And it was personal. It was someone covering their ass and eliminating links in the chain. So I think he was exactly right, even without knowing the larger scope of the several other murders in the courier link uh, leading up to it. So no, I think I think Malcolm was actually dead on in this episode, not only about this, given the information he had, I think it was the right profile, even when you get the larger information, it was still correct within the larger scope. But then his breakdown, his profile of Simon at the apartment, man, Malcolm doesn't ever really profile people in a personal way. But he does with Simon. I mean, he goes at Simon in a in a profile that really tears Simon down. And it's very personal. It's very vindictive. It's very targeted, where it's normally it's a very dispassionate murder crime scene profile. But I, I think he was I think he was firing on all cylinders tonight. How about you? Did did the did you see it differently? I know I just found it fascinating that there were that was the opportunity for two profiles to be both correct based on the information given. I just I really like the fact that Simon had his own take on what he'd been doing. And it was something that Malcolm hadn't even considered because it was just he hadn't seen it before. And he thought that he'd had all of this neatly buried, not knowing that the Ouroboros was uh, coming to New York, basically. You know, I'm glad that Gil calls him out on withholding information. I'm glad that Simon gets put on the carpet for, 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 but again, though, but presenting himself in this very Sherlock Holmesy kind of way, which later on all makes sense when you hear Malcolm's breakdown of what's really going on in Simon's life, that he's got the fake uh, Patek Philippe watch, that his scarf is getting ratted out and worn, that his book Mind Sleuth is in the bargain bin. You know, he hasn't solved the case in years. You really understand then why he needs to pump himself up why he needs to withhold information so that he can be the big brain on the scene Uh, it all makes sense then looking back at the beginning of the episode once you hear that information that that uh, Malcolm brings out about his profile. Um, yeah, I really don't like the Simon character. I think Alan Cumming does a great job with it, and I think his quips are funny. But this guy is like the worst kind of snob that I I can imagine, for me anyway, that really turns me off. It's the snob who is, you know, walking on the thinnest veneer of credibility. 
I, I find all people who are full of themselves to be obnoxious and hard to be around, but I have a lot more tolerance for obnoxious people who are full of themselves when they can actually back it up and it's deserved. And Simon can to a degree, but learning his entire profile makes it much more harder to tolerate him because he is kind of a fake at this point. He doesn't actually come around in terms of me liking him until he's his life is threatened. And he ha- the quotes that you had earlier about him being, you know, killed by a millennial, what a twist. Um, it was when these quips started coming out and, you know, you could tell he was using the humor to deflect much the way he was reading Martin to deflect uh, what he was feeling that I, I came around to like, OK, I, li- I can like you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want to see him again because I think he's an interesting foil for Malcolm. I think Malcolm's game is elevated when he has competition around him. I mean, we talk a little bit about this with Frank later on the interview. Uh, You ask a question. It's a great question about whether or not when JT is poking at Malcolm about Simon being a profiler versus Malcolm's profiling skills, is he poking at him just because JT likes to poke at Malcolm or is he trying to say like, listen, like you are not perfect. You're not a perfect profiler. There's, there's other guys out there and women out there who are doing this job and do it as well, or maybe even better than you. And sometimes Malcolm probably does need to be reminded of that. And I think having someone like a Simon on the scene makes him better because he has to be better. He can't really rest on his laurels. I mean, he go when he calls Martin, he says as much. He's like, he says, I have to outsmart this guy. And Martin is giving Simon all sorts of credit. Like everyone who knows of Simon Huxley is giving him due credit for his brain, for his skills. Uh, so Malcolm knows he has to be bringing his A++ game tonight. This seemingly brings an end to the Endicott affair. They they pin it on Natalie the Courier, the millennial uh, turned murderous. Uh, and, and Simon... Presumably seems happy with that. He's going back to to Europe. He's going to write his book of the Ouroboros murders. He's, you know, it all seems wrapped up neat. Is it too neat a cleanup? Was the was the Whitley family cheersing at the end to keep the murder in the family a bit too gross? Is is this the end of this storyline? Did they really get away with it? What do you think? I don't know. That was my my one thought about this show, uh, about this episode, rather, was that this seemed like too neat of a buttoning up of this story arc. You know, Simon and Jessica, they have this conversation and she she gives him a thread to pull about, you know, you know, he was potentially killed here. And Simon hadn't even thought of that. And he's like, oh, the rugs are different. There was enough clues a little glimmer from martin of the paternal pride that he picked up on that i i don't know if it's gonna like just be the the sleeping dog lying here it just seemed a little too convenient to wrap it up but there's still a there's still a lot of questions out there that i'm just like "Mm, someone's not gonna be someone's gonna be sitting up at night wondering about like the rugs and you know why was martin looking like prideful if the search warrant ever happened with you know was this the knife that was used for the christmas roast which was kind of gross yeah and the cheersing keeping the murder in the family it it was just it wasn't good (laughs) in some way i mean it's been eight episodes now so i am i guess i'm i think i'm okay with it being done i am only unhappy with the neat resolution tonight if it means that we don't get to see simon again which i don't think we're going to see him again in this season and not for and not for the storyline so from that i'm frustrated just because i want to see i want to see ainsley 
have the the blood drain out of her face the way she does at the beginning of the episode when Simon kind of looks at her and talks about having a female suspect in the Endicott affair because he already knows he already knows he comes he comes to New York knowing his finger is on the Whitley pulse you know he doesn't know which one exactly but as a group he knows that they're responsible so I liked seeing a little bit of fear in Ainsley's eyes which she quickly loses by the end of the episode because they get away with it. They're, they are good at this murder thing, as it turns out. So I like having a foil bringing it to them. And at no point does Gil seem to cock an eyebrow uh, or, or cop to Simon's interest in the Whitley family. He, you know, he doesn't really investigate deeply what were Malcolm and Ainsley doing at the time that Endicott was murdered. Like, no, nothing from his visit is making anyone else's eyebrows arch that looks like it's going to keep this storyline open. So I think it is done. I think it's gone to whatever the next case is, which is a little bit frustrating again because we're not going to see Simon again. But also maybe I'm ready for a new murder. Maybe I'm ready for a new a new Whitley dysfunction because Lord knows Ainsley got a taste for this all now. She thinks she thinks her shit does not stink. Martin's got his Vivian Capshaw at the hospital. There's plenty of things going on in their family that can go awry. We know now how the disposal of the body happened. We had the guy come and investigate it. We got to see Malcolm tread onto the dark side of lying to his team, hiding evidence, cutting off fingers. You know, it was presented in a kind of funny way when he's giving Sunshine a tutorial. But, dude, that's a guy's finger you cut off. A dead guy's finger you cut off to open up his phone to hide, to get information that you're keeping from your team. That's not white knight stuff. That is not white knight stuff. That is bad guy stuff. Malcolm has to deal with that. Malcolm has to eventually come to a reckoning, I think, for what he has done in protection of his family, the lines he has crossed, and that can't be uncrossed in the protection of his family. He actually had that like sort of like breaking point too. He goes, you know, saying to Jessica Daines, like, you don't know what I've done to protect this family. Like, it came up again. So, yeah, there are chinks in the armor. You did bring up something about Simon Hoxley's eyebrows, and I was transfixed this episode by Simon Hoxley's eyebrows. So, true or false, do you think that Simon Hoxley's eyebrows were a character in this episode? I mean, they were super expressive. Every every time, I mean, it was, it was almost comical the way he would raise his eyebrows and basically go, ooh, you know. I have in my notes, every single thing Simon Huxley said is an accusation. You know, he, he would do like this Zoolander-like blue steel, like whip of his head and then say something and you couldn't help but feel like an accusation. Is there ketchup on that sandwich? I don't know. I don't know. There might be ketchup on the sandwich. I don't fucking know. You know, like it felt like that kind of thing. <laughs> Is Simon Huxley right in this analysis of Malcolm? Thank you, Mr. Whitley. I'll let you know when I obtain the search warrant for your mother's house. On what grounds? Endicott's throat was slashed. Perhaps the murder weapon is still among your mother's silver. Tell me, did you use it to carve the roast at Christmas dinner? You'll never be a white knight. You're still just a scared little boy, hungry for daddy's love. Au revoir. This is a question we've been asking ourselves, Sheila, often. 
is Malcolm just a scared boy seeking his father's love and, and approval, though he doesn't say approval? At the end of the day, that's always a question I think you have to have for Malcolm. Is everything that he does just about not maybe even escaping Martin and his legacy like we often think, but is it really about trying to get his father's approval? I have kind of a non-answer because Malcolm walks this weird line with Martin where there's many times where he seems to be drawing Martin in and seeking his counsel. And we've seen that a lot more this season than last season where he was there was a lot more pushing away of Martin and Gil sort of stepping in in that father figure role. So it it depends on depends on Malcolm's mood I feel like. I think I think at his core though there is some sort of lust for having his father's approval even if it is this warped weird serial killer kind of of a murderer father but you know at the core he's still a son you know sons and fathers they they want they want to have a good relationship and theirs is strained in a way that a lot of other people's aren't in a way yeah i think there is that element that he is still seeking martin's approval as much as he tries to keep him at arm's length because he does know that this man is is toxic to him in, in a lot of different ways we've talked a lot about how martin is the kind of father who only becomes particularly interested in his children when his children are doing something that's of interest to him uh, which is you know a, a father archetype i had a father that was very similar to this i i under i actually identify a lot with i under- I see that father a lot, uh, and I particularly see it in Martin, the way he deals with his children. And I think one of the reasons he's always been my boy is because he's always sensed, if not smelled, the darkness, the similarities to himself inside of Malcolm. Even while maybe not outright or overtly encouraging those habits and tendencies, he certainly doesn't ever shy away from when Malcolm uh, shows those things. You know, he gets gleeful. He gets paternal pride upon his face when Malcolm walks on that dark side, just like he did. You know, a father who really cared about his son's emotional well-being and and uh, whole healthy life would actively discourage Malcolm doing so many of the things that Malcolm does because it is such a temptation into a, into a darkness, into a dark side of life. Martin never discourages it. Martin just comes up with how can we take it even further? He brings up a great line tonight. He says, isn't if, isn't the courier that last link being killed kind of a good thing for you? And Malcolm's like, no, 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 no. We can't let an innocent die. And it turns out the innocent was actually the guilty party. And, and in the end, it was good that she died. But that's how Martin always approaches parenting. Wouldn't the death be the more optimal thing here instead Gets of you off the hook? Yeah, instead of doing the more heroic, the white knight thing of of saving the person, even if it means you're going to expose yourself to criminal liability, to murder, to a homicide charge, it's, you still you go and save the innocent. That's the white knight that Malcolm strives to be. But you always have Martin there putting on his black hat, you know, saddling up and going, come on, partner. 
Yeah, he's like the little devil on his shoulder. Yeah, he's like a devil on both sides of Malcolm's shoulders. There are no white angels. Maybe Gil, I guess? But he doesn't turn to Gil anymore. That aspect of their relationship has evaporated in season two so, so much. Yeah, it's really in a shadow. Yeah. It really is. I mean, we talked to Lou Diamond Phillips about this uh, in the season seven, in our in our episode seven coverage for Face Value when we interviewed him. It, it really has, There's there is a an ice age uh, between the father-son relationship in Malcolm and Gil. So he's not getting that good angel advice from Gil these days. He's really not. Even in this episode, I mean, at the end, Gil gives a little bit of lip service, like, I know last night was hard and this and that, but he's not really, like, checking in with Malcolm. He's not really asking, like, how are you doing? I feel like in season one, Gil, every episode was trying to take Malcolm's pulse on. Where is your head at? Are you are you feeling more surgeon-like or are you feeling more Gil Arroyo-like? Uh, and he's not doing that at all in season two. Maybe because he feels like Malcolm has gone so far over to Martin's side at this point. Maybe it's not worth his own heart being hurt to hear Malcolm indulging in so much of his father's uh, activities and hobbies. Maybe he doesn't want to know. Maybe you know. Maybe Gil is clearly is 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 subconsciously putting on blinders. I don't know. But he doesn't have that good angel advice this season. You know, that's a really good point that you just made me. You know, sort of think about while you're you saying that is that if Gil had had the same level of interaction with Malcolm that he had in season one, Gil would be asking some very pointed questions about Malcolm, about his psyche, about sort of like the the face that he's putting out to the world and the the feigned, I'm okay with the world that Malcolm's been putting on. But Gil wasn't really putting those those detective skills on Malcolm this season. And you and I talked about this early on this season. Does Gil keep up this like, hey, Kitty, you okay, you know, kind of routine? And that really has evaporated as Malcolm has leaned into Martin a little bit more. So, yeah, I, I think that Gil is also probably dealing with he's processing the fact that he had this near-death experience, the fallout with Jessica. And I think he's just trying to keep the Whitleys at a safe distance. I mean, I think there's a little bit of Danny in his brain, you know, that the the Whitleys are dangerous to your health. Uh, Danny sees it even as she creeps closer to becoming maybe in a relationship or at least admitting having feelings for Malcolm and he for her. Even as that storyline over here crawls forward, she's still telling Gil, like, listen, Jessica, Martin, Malcolm, even these are dangerous people. They're dangerous to you. You have spent 20 plus years in their presence. That's like the there should be a Surgeon's General warning on that much contact with the Whitleys. <laughs> Surgeon General. <laughs> Surgeon. <laughs> Pun, but there is something very caustic about this much contact for the Whitleys for someone who's otherwise pretty well adjusted like a Gil Arroyo. And yeah, he's definitely backed off. There's no way the season one Gil who was invested in Malcolm's well-being, asking him about the girl in the box and how he's doing with that, asking about the junkyard killer and how he's doing with that asking about how it is being uh, having martin back in his life a bit always checking in with him there's no way that gilaroyo season one gilaroyo so invested in malcolm isn't sitting malcolm down asking about endicott's murder asking what what were you doing when uh jessica was rescuing me and saving getting me to the hospital why is your arm wet 
Right, right, <laughs> right. How did you get here so, so fast? And why are you wet? You know, like there's all these things that Gil would normally pick up on because of his love and concern for Malcolm. But I think he, out of self-preservation, has had to put up a little bit of a wall um, because of how Martin-esque Malcolm has gone to or or how far over to embracing his biological father that Gil has had to distance himself as this father figure that he's been the last 20 years otherwise which is sad and i hope it's something that they get back to i hope i hope there's some kind of breaking point that malcolm the same way he had a breakdown in front of ainsley about what he's been through trying to protect her i hope there's some kind of emotional breakdown of this wall that malcolm gets back to gill because he needs a gill good angel on his shoulder he does or he's going to be lost Uh, at some point he will not be able to fight off the darkness by himself yeah because he might just give into like hey martin sure break out of prison we'll go on the run together uh getting over to ainsley and we already talked about her a little bit and how gross the cheersing to uh getting away with murder was at the end i really think just jessica malcolm and ainsley all together you know shame on all three of you for cheersing like this you should not be celebrating another woman dying another person being dead and being a gable you know getting away with murder no how no matter how bad a person endicott is i feel like you're just putting bad karma out into the universe and yeah. uh, everyone should stay away from putting bad karma out into the universe um so so my question for you is does getting away from with murder literally is this going to encourage or discourage any kind of murderous behavior that ainsley may have now in the future because she's had a taste of it and, and so in my head it plays out two ways she's discouraged because she realizes man how close we came to being busted she remembers that feeling of simon huxley staring at her specifically in that news conference at the beginning of the episode and what it felt like to have that kind of hot light on you so does it discourage her being that close to being caught or does she feel emboldened now and have feel like she has a free pass what do you think I think she's going to be emboldened because I've still not recovered from her being so callous towards Malcolm at the end of face value when she said, you know, we're Whitley's, we're, we get, we're good at getting away with this murder stuff. I think the fact that they got away with it and she's the one who cheers to getting away with murder, like that was her line. This is a, a, a moment for her where she's like, okay, now I know what to do. I've, I've honed some skills. She tested this out with the pig where she had the porcine blood and there was, you know, she, she did this to, to bring Malcolm's lie to a head or his omission to a head. There's a lot of things that are falling into line right now for Ainsley to follow in daddy's footsteps, to, to lean into the family business, as it were. I don't like where she ended up this episode because she has no accountability for what she's done. She says, you know, she claims she doesn't remember it. Some memories are flashing back, but she's also learned some things along the way about what Malcolm did in order to safeguard her, to cover it up. And I just feel that, you know, her going back to reading Martin's journals in her room late at night, there's just a lot of things that are floating around in her head and she may not have such a handle on all of it. And she might, she might've liked that feeling. So I, I don't like where she's at. 
I don't think you can emphasize enough the fact that she has made her office in stately Whitley Manor, Martin's old office, the fact that she's reading his journals, she's hearing uh, her father's voice in her head talk about the romanticism of the first kill and the smell of blood. That's not being put upon her. That's information she's seeking out. And it, and it all derives from, I think, if I can play amateur psychologist here, she's a, 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 a young woman who grew up not knowing her father, only knowing this idea of the surgeon. She was four, I think, when you know he goes off to prison, uh, maybe just a little bit older. She has no idea who Martin is as a father that's not a killer. Like Malcolm has a memory of Martin as a dad, not as a serial killer. You know, young as he is, that memory is still there a little bit. So he has a little bit of balance for Martin. Ainsley has none of that. Martin is a complete stranger to her, but has copped to one, this idea of a birthright, a murderous birthright. Murder, we were good at murder, the Whitleys, and keeping it in the family, almost like it's a family obligation, like they're a family of assassins, almost, is how she seems to treat it. But two, she has realized this is what gets my father's attention. When I show these things, he is interested in me. And as much as Martin is guilty of that as a father, she, is, as a child, is seeking that approval from him. She wants validation and approval from her father. And she is a smart enough woman, even if she's not consciously aware of it, she's at least subconsciously aware of it, of when I do bloodlusty things, dad pays attention to me. You know, when when he has to operate on her boyfriend and she picks up the camera to keep fil- filming, that kind of shit makes Martin, like smile wide like she just made honor roll when she gets away with murder when she slices a throat you know we get a big that's my girl from martin kind of thing she realizes like like a like a pavlovian response murdery bloody things equals dad's approval and attention finally good or bad attention it's attention so i will do more murdery bloody things so i get more attention and validation from my father on top of the fact of she's ambitious and she wants to be famous you know she talks about her contracts with her network she talks about the network the network network. this is a woman who just last season at the start of the series was like a little cub reporter doing stupid assignment like on remote assignments now she's like the head of the news network and and like is this hot shot reporter on the front line like all everything and it all ties to the fact that she is a whitley you know and the romanticism of following in her father's footsteps she doesn't see any downside of it she doesn't she doesn't need to be chained to her bed at night because of night terrors like malcolm does she doesn't have any of those negative repercussions or at least not yet she has only seen the good romantic side of what the surgeon is about and what being a murderer is about yeah i think she's going to be super emboldened by this whole experience yeah, this is like a major power trip for her. Even the the press coverage with Huxley, she got a primetime slot and she was reveling in that when she was celebrating with her family. So just speaking about that press interview that she did with Simon, what was your take on her look? Was she looking like the cat that swallowed the canary saying, you know, what does it feel like to catch the woman who killed Nicholas Endicott to Simon? Yeah, I mean, I think I think her and Malcolm both did a good job of making sure Simon felt well bolstered so that he wasn't going to look too deeply into the things that he had been looking 
deeply into right before then, you know, because he just want he like Ainsley just wanted to be famous again. He just wanted the spotlight back on him and Malcolm giving him all of the credit, you know, Ainsley giving an interview where she putting him out as this this golden boy catcher of killer uh, of all these murders. That's a well-coordinated play by the two Whitley siblings to make Simon go away, right? His head is full, his ego is well polished, and now he can go off and write his book and he's not going to think about the Whitleys too much anymore. The problem with what I had with Ainsley, when she's the one who says that she's the one who put it behind the family. Again, not crediting anything that Malcolm did putting himself on the line, cutting off a finger, doing all the thing, all of the actual scut work that he had to do, putting himself in the line of fire and keeping Simon alive while Nat is shooting at them. All of those things. Yeah. She sat all of that out. She came in literally just for the interview at the end and then took credit for getting it behind all of them. All of that kind of ego building thing is, is troublesome because Martin has an ego about being a serial killer, but again, Martin may be full of himself, but Martin has 23 kills to back it up. And if not for his son riding him out to the police, would have probably not gotten caught and or killed more. Ainsley doesn't have any near that track record. She has no reason to have the ego she has. And that is troublesome because... Well, she's going on legacy. That's it. Right, right. She's like, she's the legacy admittance to Harvard who acts like they earned their way into Harvard. You didn't earn shit, woman. Like you, 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 you are coasting on your father's legacy. You actually you're part of this college admission scandal. That's what you are, Ainsley. Brother cleaned up your murder, and you're taking credit for putting it behind you. Right, exactly. Right. You haven't actually. I mean, you did the murder, but then your brother took the fall for it to you and to everyone else, and did all of the actual legwork. And and not and again, this isn't like a he said. You know, who's the better? cover upper of murders but the problem is it's going to make her sloppy because she's going to think she has a skill set to kill and hide it that she doesn't actually have you know martin has that skill set martin can have an ego about being a serial killer and give classes and teach classes on being a serial killer because he's been there he's done it he can walk the walk because he could he could talk the talk because he's walked the walk is that going to be a course offering next term because I would, I would take that class. At, at Claremont University Online School. <laughs> you know, but Ainsley is definitely talking the talk. She thinks she's hot shit, but she cannot walk the walk. She doesn't know what to do. You know, she's not really. I mean, I, all of her tips, I imagine she just has her dad's old books as her main manual. Book learning ain't the same as, as real life experience in a lot of ways and i think being a serial killer is one of those ways where you need some real life experience before you can have an ego about it can't say i have firsthand knowledge on that for those uh uh, federal authorities listening exactly let's talk about martin a little bit and uh dr capshaw martin he's someone who definitely assigns feelings and the senses with his particular actions and his memories is working with dr capshaw in the infirmary some kind of very specific rehabilitative therapy for martin is it literally changing who he is do you think so there's a moment where martin is walking with mr david into the infirmary and he talks about having a proustian moment of being you know proud to work in the infirmary again and then proustian a proustian moment or proustian memory is where the connection between your sense of smell and your memory bank uh, is a very strong connection. And I have a feeling that it's more about the butterscotch than less about the antiseptic that is luring Martin to uh, be so enthralled about cleaning bedpans. There's a moment, talking about like if this is changing Martin or not, but there is a moment between Dr. Capshaw 
and Martin where she's mourning the loss of the patient and she turns on Martin and she's accusing him of basically being a hypocrite. Like, how can you be a doctor and be concerned about this patient and you, you know, his efforts to try to offer to help were spurned again and then also be the same person who killed 23 people. So she's giving him some reality checks that I don't think that he's had in in such a way of someone that is his peer like he he obviously has a lot of respect for dr capshaw so there might be something to this relationship with dr capshaw this this friendship whatever you want to call it that she's shining a light on some of his own insecurities perhaps maybe this is making him like maybe humbling him a little bit she definitely seems to bring out a softer side of him yes it is wrapped up in still in blood and murder and 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 surgery and all of those kinds of impulsive things that makes martin's heart race a little bit faster but it it, you know it's it's almost like a substitution therapy for me the way i'm seeing it It, it's replacing the bloodlust of maybe you know like the ponfar uh in star trek instead of like you know fucking but like every seven years he needs to go kill in in order to feel alive it, maybe her being there is serving as a way of i can smell blood i can see a scalpel i can i can see people in pain and instead of arousing uh, feelings of wanting to murder in me it makes me something else. It makes me this softer side or this wistful side or or someone who just wants to suck on a butterscotch when I feel those things now. You know, there's something about her that is changing him, I, th- I feel like. Or treating his symptoms, if not the actual cause of his desires and impulses, there's something about her that's at least treating the symptoms of it because she does seem to soothe his murderous behavior. Um, he's, he's walking a fine line that he doesn't tend to walk with a lot of other people. He's showing her deference that he doesn't necessarily feel like he has to show other people. I mean, think back to Michael Potts, character, that doctor, he never, he never gave deference to him like he's doing to Dr. Capshaw. So there's there's something about her that is soothing that savage beast that is Martin's murderous side, I think. So Martin has a moment here. He's he sees the scalpel in, in the, the melee with the patient that gets stabbed. And there's scissors and a scalpel within reach on the floor of the infirmary. And he ends up stealing the scissors, which he almost kind of uses on Simon Hoxley. So, uh, stop right there, though, because he almost uses it on Simon Huxley. Why? Because Simon Huxley is first rude to Dr. Capshaw. That's a big thing with Martin. Think about what, yeah. think about the Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter, Miggs moment. We talked about this when his roommate in the beginning of the season is rude to, is it Malcolm? I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and throws a shoe at Malcolm. Yeah, Jerbear. Yeah. yeah, Jerbear. When Jerbear throws, like, I think, I think it's a shoe he shoe, throws. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he's like, that's rude. And then the next thing you know, he's electrocuting him in his bed. And we talked about how that's like Hannibal Lecter when Miggs throws cum on Clarice in Silence of the Lambs. Miggs eats his own tongue the next day. He's dead. Hannibal Lecter convinces him to kill himself because they live by a moral code and it may not be the moral code that you and I live by, but being rude to people you care about is a 
extreme no-no. It's one of his two rules. Cactor Capsule has her two rules. One of his rules is you cannot be rude to the people I care about. And I think that's very telling that he feels that way about Dr. Capshaw. She has already entered this sphere of protected people the way Martin sees it. She's protected by him. The you're being rude and then him almost plunging that scalpel into Simon Huxley. That is as telling about how he feels about Dr. Capshaw as anything else we've seen, because then he also reserves that same growl just minutes later when he says, stay away from my family. It's all the same growl. You're being rude growl about Dr. Capshaw and you're stay away from my family. It's all the same kind of Martin's, one of his triggers has has been set off. That's very telling that he feels that way about Vivian already. Very, very telling. Because uh, I don't think he's someone who makes attachments easily. And I think there's only very few attachments that he may, has made at all in his life. And he that that zone of protection that he's extended around her now, that you can't be rude to her without fear of Martin maybe killing you with a scalpel very, very important information that was done in a very subtle way in this episode. That's that's some really good insight there. So basically, this is coming down to the question that I have is that breaking out is still very much on Martin's mind. Do you think we're going to be revisiting Friar Pete and the uh, talk about Exodus early on from this season? I think so. I, I think there's a really nice bookend. Murder, is, uh, uh, not murder, <laughs> murder. Uh, breaking out definitely on his mind, right? But the the eyeing of the scalpel and the the scissors. Uh, remember, Mister David still has the third of the three security cards that he needs, and we've seen those cards again uh, since that episode with Friar Pete. Uh, the conversation he has with Malcolm about how about I escape and I take care of Simon Huxley for you and easy, you know, just casually talking about breaking out. There was the episode where Malcolm is at Claremont and then they go into the basement and and you could see on Martin's face where he has a real crisis about whether to run because it's wide open. He can just bounce out of the emergency exit in that scene, but he chooses to stay behind and make sure his son uh, survives the female killer the, from the women's wing. You know, that's where he, he's, he has that little interaction with Danny. I mean, Martin could have ran there, but the, but he thought about it. So breaking out has been on his mind all season long. And I feel like it's been, it's like a Chekhov's gun, right? If you introduce a gun in the first act by the third act, it's going to go off. They introduced him breaking out early on in the season Something by the end of this season, either the the last or second to last episode, Martin is bouncing on out of Claremont. I'm I'm convinced of it. And I think he still has the shank too that he got from early on with the the cards. Yeah, yeah, no, he has all that because I think we saw all of them again an episode or two later. Yes, uh, we did. I, 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 for no other reason other than just to indicate, yeah, he still has it. These are these are things that you should not lose sight of, people. Right, he's got a multi layered approach here. Uh, I want to play this clip for you because i think this was one of the more important uh discussions about martin that we've had in the show to date you're sorry the surgeon a surgeon i once was a doctor like you yeah with a complete lack of regard for human life not complete I've gotten that call. It hurts. You don't believe me? You killed 23 people. Never on my operating table. Church and state, Dr. Capshaw. I never mix business and pleasure. 
How could you separate the two? Perhaps that was my particular brand of madness. I'm here after all, as are you. It's a job. You're better than this place. Tell me, how, how did you end up here? The idea of separation of church and state, not mixing business with pleasure as being his particular brand of madness, I think is as much insight self-reflection wise or third party wise as we've ever gotten about Martin. And and we've had a lot of conversations and the show has done a lot of conversations about how Martin always remembers or, or always wants to bring up that, yes, he killed 23 people, but he saved thousands more on his operating table. That's a real badge of honor for Martin that he will never hesitate to bring up. So the question for you is, does that logic hold up? Is is he being sincere here? Do you believe him when he says he he can be a killer of 23 people and yet still have empathy for Dr. Capshaw as she grieves the loss of a patient. I think he, this is something that he can do because this is the nature of a sociopath, right? They, they can form attachments, but it has to benefit the sociopath in some sort of way. But for Martin, I think having this, this notion and this seeing this moment with him and he's, he's standing, he's kind of hunched over. He looks very small when he's explaining himself here because as a doctor, like this is a really hard line to walk. I mean, your oath is to do no harm. And for him, I think this is a really important distinction that he has gone on to save thousands of lives. And while it doesn't wipe his slate clean, it does in his mind, absolve some of the sins, that he's not this true monster that that everyone makes him out to be. I feel that there's that this the separation of church and state means something to him because he's very selective then about the 23 lives that he did end up taking, that there was a reason for it, that f- for whatever reason, it fed his his brand of madness that that he talks about. He has a very black and white view of karma and I think, you know, or the scales of justice. I think he feels pretty good that when he gets in front of St. Peter, you know, in the pearly gates, the 23 people that he killed will be outweighed by the thousands more that he saved in in the line of his work. The thousands he saved in his business will outweigh the 23 he killed in his pleasure. Really, really interesting insight. It was actually one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode and I really, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, just just hearing hearing someone like Martin be introspective about themselves and try to explain to someone why they are the way they are and how they see the world, I always find so fascinating. And I think someone of Michael Sheen's caliber can deliver Martin's words with such gravitas that you're kind of transfixed. You you, you can't look away from him. You you have to kind of drink in everything he's saying and then and then shake off, you know, at just the way Dr. Capshaw does. She kind of has to shake it off and be like, they told me you're going to do this. Try and bring me in. Because he is hypnotic in in the way he speaks and, and the empathy he has. You know, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy, right? Sympathy is I feel bad for you, but I can't identify with what you're going through. Empathy is a whole next level of I feel bad for you because I understand exactly what you're going through. I've had a similar experience, so I understand it better than most. Martin is giving grade A empathy here, and that is really hard to resist that lore and does she though i mean she doesn't really resist the lore let's jump to the end of the episode where she wakes where he wakes up with her in his bedroom and she's asking for the knife and then they have that kiss what does that kiss mean for you sheila what where do they go now from here 
I don't know. I mean, like, how do you unkiss a serial killer? You have to mean it, right? You have to know what you're doing. I mean, she willfully walked into his room, walked inside the red line, woke him up. I'm hoping just because I, I kind of ship Dr. Capshaw and Martin, I don't have a quite little pithy name for them. I'm hoping that it wasn't a means to an end in the sense that she just wanted to get her suture scissors back. I I, I like the chemistry between them. I, I don't think that that's fake. I think the chemistry between them is real, but I'm thinking that she might have just used this as a ruse to get the scissors back from him. I don't think so, because she could have done it in a much more confrontational way. And she didn't have a problem being confrontational with him in front of others, right? She she considers his offer to let me help with the brachial ar- you know, artery injury, and she rejects that, and she very publicly admonishes him and has him ejected from the infirmary. I think this is real. I think this is her giving over to her impulses uh, and urges uh, because they've had this sexual tension really kind of from the get-go. And maybe she's playing him. Maybe this is her version of uh, the in, in the same way he brings people in and, you know, gets them to lean forward to him. This may be her getting him to lean forward to her. And it's a power game. She makes very clear earlier in the episode, I am the one in power here. You think you're in power. I am the one that's in the, in power here. Uh, and this may be an exercise of that, but there's something very symbolic about literally crossing the red lines that we see everywhere in Claremont. And she, she very literally crosses the physical line in the hospital and the metaphorical red line in, uh, in at the end of this episode my guess and, and i would like your best guess my best guess is how, whatever she's doing working at claremont versus somewhere more prestigious is directly tied into why she is attracted to and willing to risk her career by kissing martin whitley in his room in the dead of night after distracting the guard to go somewhere else where the getting the sutures is really the ruse getting the kiss is the reason she's there or taking their relationship to the next level is her real reason for being there what whatever the reason is for that is the same reason as why she's working at claremont uh my my wildest guess is that she is wants to be the bonnie to his clyde and that these two go on some kind of harley quinn joker-esque murder spree that's how i see this going right harley quinn famously is joker's psychologist in the dc comics she suffers a traumatic injury and when she awakens she becomes enamored and obsessed with the joker and they begin this love affair this very sick twisted love affair and she becomes a full-on murder villain herself that's this relationship dynamic i feel like they're setting up here and i'm here for it I i love them together i think their their chemistry is great I think she's fantastic in this role. I'm so happy they have Catherine Zeta-Jones here. I think she works great with Michael Sheen. So I, I, I'm living for every single moment that these two have on screen together. That's my wild guess on where these two go together. I like that. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to figure out like why Dr. Castro is at Claremont. There's a very, like it's a very niche kind of place to work. And if you are an accomplished doctor, you could have your pick of, you know, a lot of prestigious institutions. And for some people, working in these more downtrodden kind of areas satisfies 
a need within themselves, right? So we saw with uh, Dr. Zhang back in the face value episode that she wanted to do some pro bono work to kind of like right some wrongs, some, you know, wash away some sins from her own past. So there might be something to that. Like Dr. Capshaw maybe feels that she she can do some good here in the prison, that this might be her calling. But also, I think there's also a certain type of person who can withstand the emotional trauma that working in such a place, you know, brings. And she might like the thrill of being this close to the ultimate danger that there is out there. So she might be getting her kicks off of captivating these, these serial killers. I don't know what her track record is. I don't know, you know, where she came from because she seems to be a new addition to Claremont. She might be a little fucked in the head, I think, a little bit, because you're not going to like willfully seek out serial killers as your your patient clientele if there isn't something a little bit off about yourself. So as far as the best guess, I don't know. I I, I want her to be genuine with Martin, but I, I'm getting this. There's a lot of subterfuge. There's a lot of you know, dodging with what she's doing in terms of being direct with him. She's very direct with him, but in terms of how she feels about him, I don't know if we've seen it. I mean, there, there's definitely passion there. There's definitely this, but I don't think she's looking for, for much more than maybe just, uh, I don't know, a little quick fix. I don't know. I think she's going to end up directly playing into his being able to escape at the end of the season. So I'm putting all of my guesses and tying them all together in a neat little Claremont breakout basket. I really like the idea of the, these two becoming like a Harley Quinn, Joker, Bonnie Clyde crime duo. Well, I will start making the popcorn for a Bonnie Clyde, Dr. Capshaw, Dr. Martin Whitley. Because in my scenario, it gets the two of them to Stately Whitley Manor, where they have a showdown with Jessica. And I, I don't know about you, but I am living for a Bellamy Young, Catherine Zeta-Jones cat uh, fight. Uh, for whatever the reason is, I, I just want to see the two of them because they are two impressive Don't women. do it. Don't do it. Ainsley's going to go off the hook. She's going to go off the rails. And you know, Dr. Capshaw is going to meet the her bloody end. Don't do it. Let's talk about Jessica before we get to our friend. Hart's interview, were you surprised in their quote-unquote emergency family meeting that she kind of turns on Ainsley here? For the first time ever, she explicitly blames Ainsley for all of this and calls her, takes her to task for not appreciating what Malcolm is doing to keep her out of jail and keep their family safe. This is the same scene where Malcolm's hand is shaking with his tremor as bad as we've seen it in episodes and, and everyone notices it. It's so bad it can't be hidden. At this point, you know, there was this real sense of Jessica and Ainsley being close together at the beginning of the season. Uh, the two of them kind of having each other's back as they went through, as she went through the, her breakup with Gil and understanding, you know, Ainsley. Uh, and, and she seemed to have some empathy and sympathy, not empathy, but sympathy for Ainsley about being the one who killed Endicott and maybe not remembering it and, and the risks of all of that. Here it seemed all gloves off though. She seemed she seemed very ready to to hang Ainsley out to dry as as a little ungrateful spoiled little brat. What'd you think of that scene? Well, there's been a lot that Ainsley's been doing since Jessica learned the truth or figured out the truth that Ainsley's been putting some really bad behavior on display. You know, I'm I'm going back to when Bertie arrived and Malcolm and Ainsley were having this tit for tat at the family dinner table. And Ainsley's relatively callous nature is not something that Jessica is going to to miss necessarily. Even if these conversations aren't happening in front of Jessica, she's picking up on the fact that Malcolm and Ainsley are having this icy sort of cold war 
And she's looking for this detente to, you know, to kind of thaw them out a little bit because they are a stronger unit together. So it's not it's not outside of the realm of possibility that Jessica would turn a little bit of this on to Ainsley because she's not taking the accountability that we talked about. She's leaning into this a little bit. And I think Jessica's picking up on these micro expressions or these micro vibes that Ainsley is sending out that, you know, like my shit doesn't stink. I got away with this. And then when she does the toast later on at the end of the episode, like this is confirming what Jessica was was saying, you know, like this is the reason, you know, why we're in this mess. Even though she does turn a little bit on Ainsley, it's not a full-on rebuke of Ainsley in the sense that she's not going to support her and not going to keep her secret. But she is letting Ainsley know that, like, enough is enough. Like, you need to you need to put your ego in check a little bit here. More like motherly exasperation with a wayward child than I'm going to uh, turn you over to the police. Maybe. Right. I'm not cutting off the trust fund, you know. Right, 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 right. I mean, Ainsley was being particularly Ainsley at that point, at that moment. And, and she has been really ungrateful. You know, we, we've talked about this, too. She blames Malcolm for so much of what's gone on this season. But and sure, Malcolm has made mistakes by keeping the truth from her for as long as he did. And I fully embrace that. We talked about this a lot in uh, the last couple episodes. I fully am on her side that Malcolm kept this from her for too, too long. The 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 paternalistic bullshit that men often do of she can't handle it. And not necessarily because she's a woman. I, I think because he just assumed she wouldn't be able to handle it because it's his little sister, uh, like a little sibling, but it's very paternalistic. And I, I have no time for that kind of nonsense. Um, but so I'm very much on her side. That being said, she also has not at all really appreciated what Malcolm has put himself through trying to keep all of this in the family. Like they're celebrating. She, I'm sorry, this. she being Ainsley. She being Ainsley. You know, okay. she, no, no, I think Jessica does appreciate it. I think Jessica fully appreciates because, because also she knows like the relationship with Gil and she knows the pressures Malcolm is under to, to his professional life. And she fully, I mean, Ainsley does too, but Ainsley doesn't appreciate it or doesn't at least openly or acknowledge it anyway. Jessica does appreciate, I think, what Malcolm has done to keep them safe and keep this family together and keep this murder inside the family what they were cheering about at the end about keeping murder inside the family malcolm made that all happen malcolm kept this all together uh and kept them and kept them all protected in the end ainsley frustratingly has still not said hey thanks bro for you know keeping all of our asses out of the fire you know she she's focused on her anger which is righteous and i agree with it but you have to call it both sides right you have to you you're entitled to your anger but you also have to say thanks for putting yourself out there at your own physical and mental health to keep us all safe. And she hasn't done that part. And I, and I find that frustrating. I think that takes us to the end of our episode discussion. We have no address corner after our interview. So I, there's a quick little thing I want to talk about with Danny as our, we'll do a Danny corner tonight at the end of the episode. We need to get to our interview with Frank Hartz. Uh, it's a great interview. We, we talk really a lot about JT, where he is, what he's been through the season, what we might be able to expect from him in the back half of the season. Uh, there's some good talk about renewal hopes in here. Uh, there's some good talk about what Frank Hartz himself is looking to do in the future and maybe starting getting involved with. It's a fantastic interview. Can't wait for everyone to hear it. Without further ado, now is our interview with official two-timer on The Surgeon Files, Frank Hartz. Frank. 
Frank Hart is back with us, guys. Thank you so much for returning to the Surgeon Files, Frank. We're happy to have you here because you're our official two-timer. You're our, our, our first guest to cut. Two-timing in a good way. Finally, we found a good use for the word. So. Hey, as long as as long as you don't two-time me. Uh, we would never two-time never. you. All right. I know you wouldn't. I know you wouldn't. And I won't two-time you either, it's, it, not, unless it's the, the good way, which is this way, right? That's right. This way, That's right. yeah. We're Hart stands here, so uh, we're, uh, we're, we're big fans. Oh, man. Feeling is mutual. Feeling is mutual. Good to feel that way in 2021. <laughs> so I feel like so much has happened since we talked to you back in episode two, uh, the Speak of the uh, Devil episode. Wow. If we can, let's start with JT's actual storyline. I feel like a lot of things have happened in the world and in the show, but let's start with JT's storyline. I want to play an audio clip and then I want to talk about it uh, real quick. So let's see if you can listen to this. Okay. I don't see how it ends well for either of you. Brett's going to the school. He's going to need backup. We're done here. You're not done here. I need an answer. Are you filing? No. You're scared. That's why you're such a miserable cop. Because that hatred you feel, it's poison. I'm not going to let it poison my life, too. That is a powerful line that I that has given me goosebumps every time I've listened to it. But it also seemed to maybe signify the end of the complaint against O'Malley and the escalation against JT. Talk to us about that moment, that episode, and is that the end of that storyline for JT? Are we are we done with the police overreach and the racial inequality storyline? Well, I think that we're we're definitely done with it as far as JT is concerned. He's decided to, as you know, as he mentioned, take the higher road and, and just get back to the work that he came to do. As far as the stragglers and some of the you know bad actors, even though they're few and far between in the in the department, I think that the reaction to what happened has, hasn't necessarily gone away. It, it's it's I don't think it's as potent. It becomes less and less uh, of an issue, I think, as the season goes on. But there are still you know. A few people here or there who might leave a certain note in his locker or a brick or, you know, look at his wife or say something funny if she's in a supermarket or, you know, but it's it's um, I think he's able to do his job. JT has moved on from the situation as as best he can and um, is is trying to, you know, just do the job he came to do. There's something really powerful in the idea of, uh, you know, talking about hatred like a poison and that you're not going to let it poison you. That being said, and the high road is the road that we always tell our kids to take and as adults we, we we hopefully try to conduct ourselves away but there is something maybe a little cathartic about you know jt finding o'malley in like a back alley somewhere <laughs> you know is, is there a part of you that wishes the storyline plays out differently you know I, I had this whole theory and we spun it out i think in the episode where we talked about it with sheila where jt maybe comes like some kind of like vigilante justice kind of guy and and that was like a lot of fun to play with as you as an actor is, is there a, a different road that that is interesting to you if if it had gone another way that's a hard one to answer only because there are just so many ways this thing could have gone you know even from the beginning i mean you know instead of just neutralizing the situation uh, by pushing the cop down he could have done much more you know which i think would have led to an even worse outcome for everybody uh, overall and I, so i think that you know it, it's it's a hard one it's uh 
to answer your question, I, I don't know because since we didn't go down that road, I can't say for sure. But as far as personal hopes are concerned, I, I like the fact that he said, you know, in the end, I'm not going to let them get the best of me. They've already taken enough and I'm going to um, do my job even better, better than I did it before. That doesn't mean, you know, when these things pop up again down the line, which hopefully they don't. But if he sees an injustice happening, I don't know if he'd be a full scale vigilante, but he can definitely be the guy who steps in and um, speaks up like we just saw in Virginia, you know, a, an active you know, military lieutenant being harassed and, and pepper sprayed by cops uh, in a well-lit area for simply complying, uh, so it seemed, then, uh, you know, someone like JT can step in if someone needs it, you know, and, and speak up and or, or, or take action. But as of now, I, I think that um, it's a hard thing to let go. I, I'll admit, I'll be honest. It's hard to just say, even for me as an actor, as a person, as a human being, to say, okay, we're, we're moving on from this. Because right. I, as Frank Hartz, I want to do more. I want to follow this thing through to the bitter end or to the to the to the great end or whatever it is but sometimes you know in life you just have to make those tough choices he's got a kid in the world now mm. um he's concerned about you know doing the job that he came to do and not letting this stuff haunt him that's what i've been talking to, to the creators about too these past months is just you know as we move forward uh finding the thing that makes this particular black life uh shine in a three-dimensional way to show the uh, the other sides of, of of jt that that rise above a situation like this and make him you know a multi-dimensional character that can breathe and live happily and fully um in the world despite uh what happened to him in that alley and i think that's the best revenge being the best cop he can be being the best dad he can be and if he sees injustice in the future stepping in and not being afraid to uh you know, say so. That's so well said. And the idea of him having a, a kid on the way, literally born, I think the episode, yep. Uh, yep. you know, in the in-between episodes of, of where you, you this happened and then this episode, the Bad Matters episode we're talking about, yep. you know, it changes you. And, and we're all parents here on the line and it makes you see the world differently. And it's ne not necessarily about you anymore. It's about the generation that comes next. I'm really happy with the way the show handled the storyline and, and the way it fitted in. It felt organic. It, I'm curious, though, what kind kind of reaction you and the show, if you know, got just generally in ta tackling the storyline. Were, were you, you Frank, as an actor, were, did you hear from people in the community? Did you hear from any kinds of voices or corners of the world in a way that stuck with you about the show tackling this very real storyline? On a personal level, I received nothing but support and uh, thanks for helping to tackle those issues on television and bring that story to, to audiences. But I'm on social media probably much more than i'd like to be these days just because it's you know it's the world we live in but you get to see the other side of things as well you know not everyone was happy with um, that storyline and um had something to say about it you know yeah. just um you had both sides you had definitely both sides you know but in general the majority of people were seemed to be happy with the fact that we were holding a a mirror up to um to the real world you know it's so important. I mean, otherwise, you know, you end up getting a chilling effect and that doesn't benefit anyone else either. You know, if the outcry is so negative, then it scares off other shows and other creators from kind of broaching these things. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, it's like you, you know, if you just if you're always running scared, uh, you know, you, you can't create good content. It's the people who are, are unafraid to take the leap 
who are the ones who uh, audiences appreciate the most. And um, so I was happy to see to have the support of a studio and a network and creators who were willing to take that leap when they could have easily just said, um, let's just go ahead and, and try to just hold off and see if we if things cool down it's just too scary you know you can always go further and further and further and you can always do a lot a lot less and i think they found that happy spot if you can call it that i mean you can't really it's not you know it's for lack of a better metaphor they found the sweet spot of of telling this uh, kind of uh, story yeah to get that kind of a platform for a message like that is it's rare to get that level of engagement yeah. But tonight, I just want to talk a little bit about the episode tonight. So JT does a little bit of uh, poking again at Malcolm, which uh, we, we always kind of revel in over here. Malcolm kind of puts down Simon's profiling skills and JT calls him out on it a little bit. Is this just JT's normal poking at Malcolm for Malcolm just being that kind of just oddball that he is? Or is JT really kind of trying to tell Malcolm that there's room for growth within his own profiling skills. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, well, first of all, it starts from a place of JT being just a, a fan of Simon Hoxley to begin with and everything that he does, and which is unexpected, but was exciting for me because I'm a fan. I'm an Alan Cummings fan. And, you know, we both come from the theater. I'm a Juilliard guy. We're both big Chekhov uh, fans. So we, you know, we're, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just chatting about that behind the scenes, our love for uh, the theater. And so to see that parallel on the page, of JT being a fan of, of the character that Alan plays, I thought was was really cool. It really just moves into this feeling that you know JT has about Malcolm has always had about Malcolm, which is from the beginning. You know, here's this young, privileged, you know, white guy who has basically broken all the rules and still sort of always given another chance. And at the same time, over the months and and you know the, the time that they've been together, JT has grown to truly appreciate what Malcolm brings to the table, what he brings when we're in the trenches, when it's not about personality or what you think about someone's family or where they come from. It's about whether they get the job done or not. He gets the job done. JT is appreciative of that, but, you know, still has to jab, has to jab at him from time to time. I mean, he's obviously jealous of Simon Oxley's abilities. You know, he's not the only profiler, you know, in the world. Malcolm just happens to be one of the absolute best at it, but he ha- he came up against another pro league player and is having some you know s- s- some some issues with that. And, and JT is just sort of on the outside looking in, a little biased because he's a fan of really both of them at this point. And it's like having your two you know two two uh, good friends in a room trying to figure out who's who's better at playing uh, you know basketball or something. I don't know. So I just have a follow up to that. Simon is praising JT as the workhorse and the brains behind major crimes and and. His esteem for JT rises when he learns that JT is also the brains because he read Mind Sleuth. So in your feeling about how JT is in in his world, maybe off work, um, is this something that would live on JT's nightstand? Like, is this a book that he would read in his spare time? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think so. Absolutely. Well, it, it just makes sense because he is such a big fan. I think there are a number of books on his, on his well, I don't know about his nightstand all at once, but that's definitely one that's made the, uh, the rounds because he's obviously extremely excited when, you know, even though he tries to hold it in a little bit, when he meets this guy, you know, because he's just really good at what he does. And again, JT appreciates someone who, who can um, be a contributor uh, as opposed to someone who takes away from uh, the investigations and the saving of... Of, uh, of lives. You know. When we talked to you back in January, you had talked about, you, Frank, had talked about watching like Unsolved Mysteries growing up and, and being a true crime fan yourself. <laughs> Is Mind Sleuth the kind of book that you would have been reading, uh, <laughs> you think? 
Yeah, I think, I think so. If it was real, I, would, I definitely, um, I probably would have. Um, but, you know, I, I was more into just, uh, you know, film and, and television that uh, sort of covered those things. I didn't really read a lot of, like, uh, true crime novels or, or books or anything like that. Um, I have, but it wasn't something that I, I, I did a ton of. You know, I would, like, maybe, like, you know, run through Capote a few times or something. But as far as true crime goes, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I definitely, I would probably take a read if it were sitting there and I came in and it was like, you know what? Oh, whoa, what's this? Yeah, looks cool. If you wait six months, Netflix might be adopting, adapting it into a, a show. So you can, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it, that, it sounds like a sequel to Mindhunter. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, not a bad idea. I mean, it's like, yeah, there's so many ways to go with these with these um, storylines. It's amazing. Speaking of, of Simon Huxley, and you mentioned Alan Cumming a little bit before, when we talked to you back in January, it hadn't been yet really announced. I, I think it actually had been announced that Catherine Zeta-Jones and Alan were joining the show for a bit, but you hadn't, uh, nothing had aired yet. Uh, talk to us a little bit about shooting with Alan Cumming, what that was like. I, I'm a huge fan of his from theater. I, I go way back into like the 90s with him in different Broadway shows. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to, to film with him and him joining the show for a bit. It was it was a blast, to be honest. Again, you know, we both come from the theater, so there was a there was a shorthand there. You know, we both love Chekhov, and we got to, to chat a lot about that behind the scenes. And, um, you know, it was just, um, it, I felt like we just had something to talk about right immediately, which is always fun. It wasn't like, there was nothing weird about it. It was just sort of an, an instant uh, chemistry which i thought you know even though we didn't have a ton to do together on screen uh for the time that we were there in front of the camera and behind the scenes it was just seamless and and this was for this particular episode it was the first time i was able to start shadowing as a director uh this season and sort of seeing things from the other side of the camera as well and so I got to dig into this particular episode in ways that, you know, I wouldn't normally, you know, and that that was exciting to have an an actor like Alan Cumming involved in an episode where I'm sort of venturing out in that space for the first time and to feel so comfortable around someone like that. Simon was just so much fun to watch this episode, but his story arc to me, seems a bit neatly wrapped up. I don't know if you can share this or not, but is this the end of Simon's run on the show? It would be sad to, like, just have him for one episode. Well, one in three seconds from the previous episode. Well, yeah, no, I don't know if I can share that or not, to be honest with you. Um, You know, actually, the, the, the truth of the matter is I don't know because... There are a million ways he can always be around and could be around, and and so it's it's one of those things where I can't I can't say one way or the other for sure. Yeah, I mean, Gil definitely leaves the door open for him at the end of the episode. Exactly, he? exactly. He was enjoying life in New York. I will tell you that. I, I hope he comes back someday. I really do, and I hope him and JT get to go on a <laughs> a mission together. <laughs> so yeah, sure. <laughs> oh my god, I, I, I can see the episode now. It's uh, where JT's almost like a Chris Farley type. Remember that time you solved that crime, Simon? That was cool. You know, it was like a real fanboy moment because that's not a side of JT you really get to see very often. You don't get to see him fanboy at all. He's, you know, you're just very cool and collected and, yeah. you know. And, and it would also be cool if he had his moment of like, you know, really just nailing it in front of Simon, you know, and, and, and being appreciated for that. Like, wow, okay, all the things I heard about you are true you know 
know, like then he could really just flip out, you know? I like that Simon came in and he, as you would expect from the way they established him, he knew he knew the entire team's bio. The thing he knew about JT was that he was the workhorse of major crimes. He had done the research. I like that flattery because, I, you know, JT does do a lot of heavy lifting. We don't make enough of the fact that he was running major crimes when Gil was in the hospital at the beginning of the season and had been running it for quite a while. You know, so it was great little recognition for JT because he, you know, sometimes gets lost in the shuffle with Malcolm being on the team and the stuff he goes through. I'm I'm really excited moving forward to, you know, as you said, you know, really just... Uh, dig more into the, uh, the 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 dimensions of who JT is. What what makes him tick uh, at, in his personal life, home life, and also just you know watching him uh, ascend the ladder uh, within the department and do do a good job. You know, and uh, I think all of those things will will come in due time. Hopefully, we'll have many many more episodes to explore that. Oh, I just don't even get us started on renewal news. Don't get us started. As, as, as May creeps closer, the, the renewal drums start beating. Everything is crossed in We're the We're feeling good. We're feeling good. Uh, I love that. I love that news. Uh, well, I wanted to ask about that, though, a little bit. And I know there are spoilers and, and there's a limit on how much you can say. But we lost you. We lost JT for a few episodes when, you know, the birth of uh, their baby at right after those episodes three, four-ish. Now we're here back on the team. We're back in. we're into the back end of season two. Can you give us like general idea of what where JT is going? Is he on the sidelines? Does he have some major storylines coming up, even if you can't say what they are? As far as major storylines, I, I don't know. The, the answer is no. But he's definitely he'll continue to be that workhorse that he's always been. And uh, you know, you know, it's, it's like there's just a lot going on, and he's sort of trying to keep all the plates spinning in the air as best he can, and and just uh, contribute. But as far as major storylines for JT, I, I don't think so this season. From here on out. But you know, but that would be saying that every every storyline isn't major, right? So I think that he's continuing to do what he does well, and that is be a team player. He will have. Well, I'll say this: he'll have his his moments, uh, his his heroic moments. Uh, again from time to time and uh, you know which I, I think is exciting you are hooking the bait and just dangling it all out there really nicely it's it's <laughs> you're just you're, you're just teasing you're teasing listen here. listen leave them wanting more and then give it to them at some point i hear you i you've got me sold i'm sitting, I'm sitting here i'm running off the mix some popcorn getting ready <laughs> This is going to be a, a, a trap to see if you can definitely step aside it. We haven't seen the team work with Catherine Zeta-Jones yet. She's the other big ad since we last spoke to you. But without spoilers, can you say if we're going to see the team in Claremont with Dr. Capshaw and Martin at all? Did you Have you gotten to work with her? If so, spill some tea. What was that like? You know, I, I haven't had a chance to work with Catherine yet. Um, you know, I definitely um, you know look forward to that happening in the, in the future. Definitely things do intertwine from time to time. But as far as specifics, yeah, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, as far as JT is concerned and, uh, you know, Catherine, I think that um, I'm hoping that 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 definitely materializes at some point. I don't know if it'll happen that much uh, this season, but um, we'll see where everything goes in general. There's a lot of fingers crossed, you know, and that's the great thing about this show is that there, it's like you said, there's so many directions to go with a character like JT. He's pretty much an open palette to paint from at this point. So it's like, you know, I don't really know all the answers and um, whatever it is, it'll be exciting. I can promise you that. Well, we are fans and we are here for it. So we're just about out of time, but we need to know, need to know, if you had to vote for Malcolm's crime moniker, what would it be? What would you vote for? 
You know what? That's a. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think some of the some of the options were professor profile, profile. captain crime fighter. Man, that that's a that's a that's a tough one. I, I, I would because I would want to definitely if I if I had to if I had to vote though out of the ones that have already been been mentioned. Uh, there, there was also brain hacker. That was the other one. I'd probably go with. I, I like captain crime fighter. I'd go with that as far as the ones that have been mentioned already, but. I'm sure JT is sitting around just trying to be extremely creative uh, when it comes to uh, the one that he picked for all time. And so who knows? Maybe that'll pop up in the future along with his actual name. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's what the JT is going to be, the moniker. So, you know, like <laughs> Justice Together Tarmel or something like that. So, <laughs> oh my God. How would it be if your first name is Justice? That would wow. be fantastic. Listen, man. Oh my gosh. That, 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 would, that would be cool. You never know. It could be that. It could what? be that. I'm getting a phone call from the producers. Hold on. I got to take this. I've got something about uh, revealing uh, secrets. Uh, hold on. I gotta... They're Frank... wondering how he got into the vault. I know. I know. I, I, I... How did you do it? You have that master key. Well, he's the brain hacker. The magician reveals no secrets, sir. <laughs> reveals no secrets. Who's the we'll real profiler here? You really we'll, 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 give, we'll give Mike Professor Profile there. <laughs> I, I've been stealing Sam and Chris's garbage for six months, so I'm. Uh... This is. I'm realizing now. This is just a bit too much fun. I think. That, <laughs> I think. I think that one of these days we should all just get together and just talk about random things. Like you know, it's fun to talk about shows that I'm on, but I just want to talk about nonsense one time. You're yeah, our, let's go. Like, talk about baseball about... or something like that. I'm down. <laughs> I got my vaccine. I'm good. That's it. I mean, I'll, I'll buy. I'll buy you. Uh, I'll buy you a uh, Pat Frieda steak sandwich at City Field. We can go catch a Mets game. I'm digging it. I'm digging it. I'm all in. I'm, I'm vaccinated as well. So someday we can make it happen. That's it. I got my second dose in a week. So uh, <sighs> I'm a superhero. That's it. I'd say it. I, I haven't gotten a shot since probably I was what, like 11, maybe. <laughs> I, I feel powered up. I know. I know. Hovering off the ground just a little bit. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on again and talking with us. Uh, hopefully, maybe we get you back again before the season ends. I think we still have five more episodes left. But even if not, we're going to have you come on for something else. We're just going to come on and hang out. You'll just come That's hang it. out at the clubhouse with us. You, you have my number now. so we're <laughs> That's it. We're, we're, we'll make it happen. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Frank, what's your social media? Yeah, it's at, uh, at Frank Hart's Truly. Because somebody snatch frank cards so yeah it's like a just like a dead page but yeah at frank cards truly for uh, instagram and uh, twitter and um yeah all that good stuff oh this, this is fun you're one of those blue checks that like interacts with the fans and and that's always very rewarding especially for the prodigies out there who love to get in and out with the fans and and chat with them you are one of those that actually do uh, respond and interact i try i try i I love i mean i just love the fans i love hearing directly from from the fans i can't wait to actually physically get out there again uh and, and 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 meet more people at the conventions and different places and really just feel that in person but for now we have our social media and I, I try to do the best I can. I'm not as good as some, but I try to stay connected. Well, uh, I did hear last week that Comic-Con in New York is on for October. So I'm going to have some fingers crossed that we get to meet some prodigies at this convention. Let's go. Let's go. We're ready, man. We love we And love if Comic-Con. not, if not, we'll make our own fun somewhere else <laughs> talking about nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> I want to see the people. I want to be out there amongst the people. Are you going to be up at midnight to live tweet the West Coast feed? That's oh, yeah, that's asking. fun. There you know you what? Um, <laughs> I, I do try to do that. I do, and, and, and I try not to doze off, but yeah. I, right. I need like little like robot fingers that can do it for me. That's it. We yeah. got to get, get Frank a nap. 
That's or, what PAs are for. There's always, <laughs> time, there's always a time to nap in between. I yeah, you get the little power naps in the commercials. You'll be good. Exactly. All right, guys. Definitely check out Prodigal Son. Check out Frank on social media. And uh, anything else we need to plug before we go? You have any, you have any uh, anything coming up that uh, we need to know about before we let you go, Frank? We talked about it before, man. I'm, I'm you know, I'm making this trend, not transition, but I'm adding to the uh, to the book here, the uh, the directing. So, you know, look for in the near future some television and films directed by uh, yours truly. It'll be a little bit now because I'm still just a young duckling trying to get it all together, but. Um, I'm excited to uh, show what I can do on the other side of the camera as well. Uh, we'll have to have you back for that for sure. Definitely. Definitely. Thanks, Frank. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. <laughs> Take Bye. care. Bye. All right, guys. Thank you so much to Frank Hartz for coming on again. You gave us so much uh, of your time. You were very gracious. I cannot wait to have you on either again at the end of this season or in season three, have you on a bunch. Uh, you are an official Clubhouse member here at Pod Clubhouse. And so we we, uh, we can't thank you enough for giving all, all of your time now and just talking to us uh, so generously. So thank you guys. Just be super, super crystal clear. We mean two-timer in the best way possible. <laughs> Obviously. And as he makes clear, he would never two-time us, and we would never two-time Frank. Never. We are Frank Hart stands. How's his jacket coming along? Is it fully embroidered? Do we have it ready? Oh, to go I'm up to home? the H. I'm up to the H in hearts. I'm good. By the time we get to City Field with the beers and the food, we'll, it'll be done. It's getting ready, guys. All right. Well, before we take off for tonight, like I said before the interview, there's no Adresa's corner tonight because Adresa wasn't in this episode. So I want to I want to go back to Danny, who didn't have much to do this week. Danny, JT, and Gil really kind of playing second fiddle to the Simon Huxley show this episode. But Danny has really strong knowledge of yachts in this episode she she understands cruising and and transatlantic cruising and the terminology and she she schools the boys on what a chief steward is versus what a bosun is she says when jt calls her out on it she says that she watches a lot of below deck which i applaud below deck is a fun show on bravo everyone should probably watch it i was curious do you think there's something else in in danny's past that gives her this kind of specific high end of life knowledge you know, I hadn't thought about it before, but like I haven't really watched Below Deck, but from conversations that I've had with people who who like it, it becomes very addictive because of the lifestyle. And there might be something to it because she's, she's got a lot of insight into a lot of different things that we only get little nuggets of. But like as you and I are like diving into these episodes and stringing a lot of different things together, she might have a Whitley-like background. I don't know how much we've really learned about her younger years, her 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 wonder years, as it would be. Yeah, I think I think that was kind of where I was going too. I mean, we know that she spent a lot of time with a high-end drug lord, right? Undercover. Uh, that was a whole plot in, in the early part of season one, where her and Malcolm go undercover a bit and relive. A live, uh, so we get a little glimpse of that lifestyle. So I, I thought to myself that could very well explain some of this knowledge uh, from her time spent living that other kind of life. But it, it escaped me. Like we don't really know what Danny's life like was as a child. Really, what her motivations are and where she comes from in, in a very kind of specific way. I thought it was an interesting little maybe nugget the show is placing to to eventually delve into the backstory of Danny. Powell and where she comes from and and what her motivations are. I don't know. I think it's an interesting little fun fun thought experiment to think about why does Danny actually know so much about 
yachting and, and that kind of life stuff because that's not common knowledge. Uh, and maybe you could glean it from below deck. For certain, they cover stuff like that. They talk about that kind of lifestyle. But mm, I think it's more fun to think. But having encyclopedic knowledge of what a bosun does, that's beyond a below deck kind of right, 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 right. exactly. There was and there was a confidence and a specificity of someone who has lived that life. Like I, I have cruised a lot. I've taken a lot of Caribbean cruises and and I've cruised all around. So I can speak about going on cruises in a way that people who haven't don't have that kind of specific knowledge. Yeah, like I'm uh, good with starboard and aft. You yeah, know exactly <laughs> right. You know, like uh, deep in the aft. You know, and uh, and. And, uh, and yeah, so she says that she drops that knowledge in a way spoken with someone with lived confidence. Uh, and I don't think you get that from just binging, binge watching a TV show. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's, I think maybe the show given us a fun little nugget, uh, for us to, to pick at with Danny. We have to get Aurora on the show. Uh, yes. and we have, we have to pick at that a little bit if we do. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Sum podcast. Make sure to download us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcast please leave us a five-star rating we really appreciate it it hopes uh it helps give us visibility for other shows it helps apple want to promote our show uh you can listen to pod clubhouse we would love to hear from you there you can find us online uh, at all the social media channels at pod clubhouse and join us next week for episode nine which hopefully is an adresa centric episode we do know it is called the killabustus uh, i don't know what that means at all but i'm excited i'm excited chila i might have some weird song reference for you by then I, who knows? Uh, who knows? The Killabusters is coming at you, whether you like it or not, next week. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.